Welcome to Queen's University Belfast's COVID-19 question and answer session. Uh, today, I'm delighted to welcome Professor Paul Moyna, Professor of Immunology and Director of the Kathleen Lonsdale Institute for Human Health Research at Maynooth University, and Professor of Immunology at the Wellcome Wolfen Centre for Experimental Medicine, Queen's University, Belfast. Paul, you're very welcome. Hi, Mark. Good to chat. Absolutely. Paul, um, this COVID-19 pandemic obviously has precipitated a health crisis, the likes of which we haven't really seen in the last 50 years. Um, however, it also has had an adverse effect on our economy and in the way in which we live, the new normal. We are now taking our first cautious steps to ex exit the lockdown that we've been in for the last number of weeks. As a scientist, Paul, what do you think is the best approach to try and balance our health, our lifestyle and our economic priorities? So first of all, Mark, I think it's fair to say it's an unprecedented experience in terms of what we're going through at the moment. A lot of discussion at the moment is focused on exiting lockdown and the conflict that creates between economy and health. I actually think it's more complex than that. If you look at some of the other challenges it faces, lockdown doesn't only pitch the economy against health, but sometimes health against health. I think of your own work, actually, Mark, in which you've reviewed the effects of lockdown on non-COVID healthcare, especially around cancer care and diagnosis. So we need to be looking at exiting lockdown and doing it safely. When I look at the research, one of the positive things is how effective early social distancing and attention to hygiene etiquette was, and that these, these actions had a greater effect in the subsequent lockdown. And I think this gives us hope in exiting full lockdown and going back to that situation of respecting very strong social distancing, hygiene etiquette, and probably supplement that with strong testing and tracing as well. I think we need to look to transition to that phase with some urgency. Absolutely. Um, Paul, one of the things that we hear a lot about at the moment is testing and the importance of testing, but also the fact that there seems to be very much different types of testing. Maybe can you highlight for our audience, first of all, you know, is testing important? And then secondly, how should we do the testing? I think it's very important. The greatest defence we have at the moment against SARS coronavirus 2 is staying apart from each other and hence the social dis distancing is quite effective. However, we need to support that with very strong testing and tracing. This is critically important since the virus can transmit via symptomatic and asymptomatic individuals. So it's really important to try and see where the virus is and to see the virus, we just have to do testing. The present testing system directly detects the virus from swab samples by a method known as PCR that is the type of testing we should be doing at the moment since it detects the virus very early on in infection. There is a second type of testing and that is based on antibody detection. So when we're exposed to the virus, we produce antibodies, usually within two to three weeks, and those antibodies remain for some time. Now that's really important because at the moment we don't really know for sure how many people have been infected by the virus. So if we use these antibody detection systems, and look at the presence of antibodies, we will get a measure of the proportion of the population that has been exposed. And that's really, really important because in terms of calculating what the case mortality rate is, we need to know how many has actually been exposed and infected with the virus. It's also really important in terms of looking at the spread of the disease. So the two tests, the PCR and antibody tests, to complement each other, to serve different purposes, but both are really important. 
And Paul, one of the things we hear about is capacity in relation to testing and needing to test like a large number of individuals. Um, how do we do that? So first of all, scale of testing is very important. Some of the models predict we should be testing at a scale that gives positivity rate of around 3%. But as well as scale, speed is absolutely important. So if you take an individual that's infected on day one, maybe by day five, typically they will start to present with symptoms. But probably from day three to four, they've begun to transmit. So as soon as the positive case is identified, it's very important that you can trace the contacts. If you can do that within a 24-hour period, it becomes very effective because essentially you identify the contacts before they can transmit and so it cuts out the train of transmission of the virus. So the gold standard for testing at the moment is the PCR-based test and that takes around four to six hours. Now hopefully we'll see some improvements on the technology to allow more rapid testing that could be potentially at point of care. And I know some colleagues in the Welcome Wollstone Institute for Experimental Medicine are partnering with industry to look at these various possibilities. And if we're looking at to ramp up to your know, very significant figures, like you know, hundreds of thousands of tests, are there any tricks that we can use to do that more efficiently? One of the approaches that I've proposed, and it has been used widely and historically in epidemiology, is to do pool sampling. So let's take a population with a low prevalence of active infections, and I should say that pool sampling works especially well with low prevalence. So let's say you have a population and 1% of the population is infected at a given time. If you had 100 samples to test, instead of testing them all individually, you would put them in pools of 10 and test those 10 individual pools. Nine pools would be negative, so all 90 samples on the, from those nine pools could then be cleared as negative. You can then go back and retest the 10 individual samples in the positive pool. So that's one way of scaling up. I think it's really important to say as well, Mark, that at the moment in Northern Ireland, the testing is mostly in a hospital setting with little or no community testing. I actually think community testing is important because that gives an opportunity to curtail the transmission of the virus at the community level. And by suppressing the transmission in the community, that reduces the load on hospitals in terms of hospital admissions, ICUs, and ultimately death. And do you think there's a role that, for example, the universities can play in the testing effort? In terms of increasing the scale of testing, I've previously proposed that universities could play important roles. When we consider the present testing by the PCR method, this is a technology that would be routinely used in universities. There are many great researchers in Queens, for example, that would use this technology routinely. And again, that's something I would like to see explored, the possibility of using a resource within the university. A couple of weeks ago, the world-leading Crick Institute, they actually published a protocol and procedures around partnering with a clinical lab and provided all the details in terms of what are the requirements to establish a clinically accredited lab in a university or research institute setting. And I think that's something we could probably learn from. Absolutely. Paul, moving away from sort of testing to more prevention and treatment options, obviously you're an immunologist. So what, what do you think the best approach is that we should take? Well, we all hope that a vaccine will be developed for global use. We've heard a lot of speculation in the media around time frames. We are hopeful, but then there's no guarantees we will get a vaccine. A lot of viruses have evaded us in terms of creating vaccines. Something like HIV, for example. Yet, we live with HIV because we've got really good antivirals. So ideally, yes, it would be great to get a vaccine. 
Many vaccine trials are currently ongoing, with some indicating delivery dates later this year. Now, to me, that sounds very optimistic, considering our past experience of the many years that were required to produce successful vaccines. However, some of the initial findings give some hope, and some of the early data that I've seen show that the vaccines can, these lead vaccines, can protect or at least partially protect from the virus in animal models. And other studies in humans show that the potential vaccines can at least generate an immune response. So the ideal scenario is that a vaccine will be developed and it will work. But I think we also need to be cognizant that even if it doesn't work, and maybe it'll only work partially, then we have to produce it in sufficient quantities. And then, of course, the hope is that the uptake is sufficient to get to that level of herd immunity. Now, as well as intense work on vaccines, there's also much work being done on trying to identify new antivirals. Again, there are trials and basic research going on at the moment, including some here in Belfast, looking at antivirals and the potential that they could have to curtail the replication of the virus in the body. And what is the evidence that people who have actually had COVID-19 infection have developed immunity? It's difficult to say definitively that they have immunity, and there's been a lot of commentary on this publicly. I'd probably be quite positive myself in terms of these people having immunity because many millions of people globally have been confirmed as positive and I don't think there's any evidence to suggest any of them have been reinfected. There were some cases recently in Korea that suggested reinfection but that turns out to be due to some residual virus fragment that was left in the body rather than an infectious virus. So, so far we haven't really any evidence of reinfection. Also, if you look at individuals that have recovered they have neutralizing antibodies in their blood. So in a lab-based setting, these neutralizing antibodies can stop the virus from infecting cells. Also, there have been studies called plasma transfer studies in the clinic with small numbers of patients, and they've been performed in which plasma, the liquid phase of blood, has been taken from a convalescing individual, so that's somebody who's been infected but has recovered. So this plasma has then been administered to infected patients who are experiencing serious illness, and these studies suggest that the plasma could reduce disease, probably by the presence of neutralizing antibodies. And then if you look, the closest we have in terms of a precedent to look is to look at the original SARS virus that caused the SARS outbreak in the early 2000s. In terms of immunity with the original SARS virus, antibodies peaked at around four to six months, but were still present in uh, measurable levels two to three years later. So all those various pieces of information to suggest to me that we're probably likely to get immunity, but it's very difficult at this stage to be definitive in relation to how long that immunity would last. And Paul, realistically, how long do you think a vaccine might take to develop? So typically this would take five to ten years. Sometimes it's even longer. So trying to condense that down to 12 to 18 months is an enormous challenge. Actually, if it's achieved, it'll be a remarkable achievement and completely unprecedented. Some groups like the Jenner Institute using a viral vector vaccine approach, they've mentioned earlier timeframes of September or October. Now that surprised me, but certainly that institute has a very significant expertise in the field, so I would take what they say seriously. But again, to achieve within that time frame is unprecedented and it would be a remarkable achievement for science. One of the things that's actually been really impressive has been the number of people who have already agreed to be recruited onto different clinical trials, particularly in the United Kingdom. Uh, why do you think that is? One of the things that has struck me with COVID-19 is the amazing sense of solidarity and everyone is in this together. And you can see that right down in terms of lockdown and the strong adherence to, the, to that. 
So I think there's a real collective spirit in terms of trying to fight this. Everybody is trying to figure out how they can make a contribution to help with resolving this challenge. Also, while COVID-19 is a public health problem, I think myself the solution is going to turn out to be in science and technology and in research. And I think people see that now. And again, they want to be part of that and be part of the solution. Absolutely, um, Paul. And um, another sort of area that people have been interested in is trying to repurpose drugs we already have in the fight against COVID-19. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that makes sense. And I know some colleagues in Queens, uh, Ulton Power, for example, is actively involved in that process and doing great work. Now, the reason it makes sense is because we already know so much about licensed drugs and we already know the outcome of all their safety trials. So if you can show that a drug, licensed drug, has the potential to be an antiviral, you can shorten that time frame from discovery to clinical use. That's a big, big advantage. It shortens the time frame. So if we can get a drug that has already been licensed, that can be used, it will save very valuable time. And Paul, finally, a message of hope for our audience. Well, as I mentioned before, Mark, I think the solution for this is going to be science. It's going to be in the research. Over a short number of months, the level of our research activity has just been incredible. So I think that's where a solution is going to come from. And I think more than uh, ever now we need research and we need scientists. And that's something that's stuck uh, with me and something that I've uh, seen across a number of countries. More involvement, more contribution from science and scientific expertise being drawn upon. Now we've many shots on goal from the antivirals, vaccines, and really we, we only need to score one of those goals and hopefully we will score one of them. Now, there's no guarantee, and for that reason, I think whatever strategy we come up with, we need to include a plan for worst-case scenarios where we don't have a vaccine and we don't have an antiviral. But certainly science and research offers hope here, Mark. Thank you very much, Paul. Uh, very interesting topic. You're very welcome, Mark. Thank you. Thank you.